This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash US slash get QR code. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 99 of the Washed Up Emo Podcast. I'm Tom Mullen from WashedUpEmo.com. Today, we welcome Brett Detar from the Juliana Theory. They recently announced a reunion tour, so it was fit to finally get Brett on to talk. Little did I know that Brett and I were both at a Sunny Day Real Estate show in New York City back in 2000. Plus, he noticed my washed up emo shirt at Sunny Day Real Estate's reunion show in 2009. So, after my mind was blown with those two facts, Brett and I talk about his past, including his obsession with Fugazi, history with Zayo, and what happened at Juliana Theory's first practice. Brett was brutally honest with what went wrong along the way with Juliana Theory's career. It was really refreshing to have someone just lay all the cards out there like that. In the end, the band followed their own muse, caught a lot of heat for it, and in my opinion, a little bit ahead of their time. This is episode 99 of the Washed Up People podcast with Brett Detar from The Juliana Theory.
So uh, I love that fun fact that you and I were at the same Sunny Day Real Estate show in 2000. We sure were. That was that was that was a great show because that was right when everybody thought like you know they were done, they weren't going to come back. Sunny Day Real Estate broke up, and then he came back, and like Dan had that beard, and it was great. Where did you grow up? You grew up in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, I grew up in a small town called Greensburg, which is maybe like. 40 minutes from Pittsburgh, southwestern VA. And how did you get into music? Were you, was it, was it a record shop? Was there an older brother? I, I think music was a part of my life from the, pretty much one of my earliest memories. My parents used to sing to my mom when she was pregnant with me. Like they used to sing to me in the womb. And then when soon after I was born, I guess like my dad and, mom would sing me to sleep every night and, and my dad was uh he was in a like a gospel singing group when i was really young and i remember some of my earliest memories was going to watch them practice and i would just, you know i remember sitting there and watch you know watching them and and my grandma was really musical and she always encouraged me to like take piano lessons and she gave me the family heirloom piano when I was pretty young and I remember you know hearing her sing and hearing her sing harmonies and things so I think I just kind of was born into it I guess and then with like you know punk or hardcore like was there a was there were you finding out I mean everybody has that trail of you know you got into like the popular stuff and then you sort of dug deeper what were some of those gateway bands the gateway for me absolutely was Fugazi. And I remember there was this kid at my high school. You know, you got to remember this is maybe, maybe 93. And maybe even before that. Yeah, I'd say probably 93. And it was way before music was disseminated easily. And it was when it was kind of harder to find things that were underground. And there was this one kid in my class named Justin Baldinari, and he would wear, like, shorts every day of the year, jean cut-off shorts and combat boots. And every day he would have a band T-shirt of, like, a band that I had never heard of, whether it was, like, I remember it was, like, Skinny Puppy and KMFDM. And he always wore this shirt all the time, but this is not a Fugazi T-shirt. And I remember thinking, well, that's interesting. wonder what that means. And so... I was at my friend's house. We we played on the same hockey team. And he was like, yeah, my friend Justin's going to come over and hang out. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, he's that, he's that kid that listens to the music I've never heard of. And I just remember somehow he shows up and he puts on Fugazi Repeater on cassette. And I'll never forget hearing that song for the first time because it was like absolutely nothing else I had ever even heard in my life. And it, it, it almost didn't even sound like music because it was so not, you know, my definition of music at the time, because it was so not melodic. And, you know, I, I remember hearing like, stay away from that window, boy. And just like the, the, you know, the mm-hmm. yelling, talking kind of thing. And I was like, it, I kind of just like stopped in my tracks and was like, what, what on earth is this? And I'm not sure if I liked it or if I didn't like it or if I did, but I know that 
soon after that they became my favorite band and it was one of the first shows I had ever got to go see and I stuck out with Chad who ended up being the bass player with Juliana Theory. We like snuck out, went to the show and we're in the mosh pit the whole time. But yeah, so I can pretty much safely say for me it was definitely Fugazi. And then from there, what was the is it was the, were, were you like you said you snuck out to go see them like were there shows that you were um, allowed to go to or not allowed to or listen to? I'm not really sure. I I remember my first real concert, my first big concert that I was that I went to was Rush at the at the hockey arena in Pittsburgh, and I don't know if I would have been allowed or not would have not would have not been allowed to go see Fugazi or not, but I just didn't ask. And I, I just remember sneak, sneaking it. One of the things that stands out to me at that show was my shirt was two sizes bigger when I left because I was like two people from the front of the stage. And it was just like this mass undulating, moving, breathing, you know, pit of people and there was so much sweat and so much humidity that literally my shirt just got stretched so much. But yeah, there, like it was weird because Greensburg, Latrobe, Pennsylvania had a really kind of like a really vibrant underground, under eighteen, all ages like kind of band scene. And there were so many different bands that were like poppy punk kind of bands and hardcore bands, metal bands, industrial bands, and everybody played together and we all hung out at one restaurant and one coffee shop. And so a lot of my earliest show memories are seeing local bands and, you know, kind of like that whole scene in general more than anything, I think. Were you starting to learn about more labels and bands and, um, you, you know, I, I grew up in like a suburb, like a really small one. You know, you guys were close to Pittsburgh. Were you traveling far for other shows or what other thing? Cause again, this is at the, this isn't as easy as us going online and searching or looking up a YouTube video for a band. It was, it, 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 it took work. Oh my God. It took so much work. I remember one of the first shows that I ever really traveled to Chad and I traveled to DC to see Jawbox. And that was probably in about 94 as well. And I just remember being completely blown away by the show in general because everybody had a uniform. And I had not seen that because though we might have been close to Pittsburgh. We were, we were totally in a small town suburb. And I didn't really go to Pittsburgh very often. And so everybody just kind of looked... I don't know, like just normal kids, skaters, and just, I don't know, normal kids. And I just remember going to that show and seeing all these DC kids wearing like horn rim glasses and tight black pants and like, you know, dyed black hair. And I, I remember that really standing out. But yeah, I, I think that, that definitely like discovering Fugazi first and then learning about Discord. And, you know, we, find like oh cool we should listen to lungfish oh we should listen to jawbox we should listen to shutter to think and you know it kind of started there and then 
soon after that, I got very heavily into hardcore, like metalcore, which was kind of, for me, kind of came like right after that. And that's where I started really finding out about zines and finding out about, you know, mail order catalogs, like you get the doghouse catalog or whatever. And you'd, you'd find, you know, you kind of find bands that way. But I think like the real, the real gateway drug for me was older, was older kids that like had encyclopedia type knowledge of, of fans like kind of showing me stuff i love that the the description you had of the dc show because you're like this country kid in essence going to this big city and it's like these kids look like adults or they like they like opened up a book i'd never read before knew existed and i think it's harder now but it's like you look at that you go to a first time i went to a show in new york i'm like oh my god what like it really takes a long time to get to like the country <laughs> it does it, it you think about it now and it's like somebody could come from new york and come to greensburg pennsylvania and they would look like an alien because they would be two years ahead yeah fashion wise and and there was no you know there was certainly there weren't fashion blogs and there weren't there wasn't Instagram and Facebook and things that you could, a trend could start in within three weeks. It's everywhere. It was literally like I, I had, I was, I think I was probably wearing like really baggy Jankos and I had like <laughs> a, a bowl cut. Of course you did. A, like a baggy shirt. I'm and, right there with you. And then I think I had Converse one stars, um, <laughs> because Kurt Cobain wore them. And, and, and then literally show up and like everybody has these clothes that fit and there's this aesthetic that matches. And I just remember thinking, oh, man, I am so not cool. Like, not that I ever really thought I was cool at all, but it was the first time that I became aware of the fact that I was just completely did not fit in with the, the dress code that I didn't know existed. In, in this music but also it wasn't available like i thought sometimes they only sold double xl or you know the like the city sizes i always joke about that with like <laughs> when you get a haircut in the country is different than getting a haircut in a city you're right you're definitely right <laughs> like short on the sides long on the top is different <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> so true so when you were getting into Metalcore, that kind of brings up, I think, maybe a little bit of your time in Zayo, which, um, all intents and purposes, was on a Christian label. Um, and I, I went to school in the, in the South, and I actually met a lot of people that could only listen to Christian bands. So to have hardcore bands and to have metalcore bands like that was a huge deal. It was, I think, in that world. And they were one of my favorite bands before I was in the band and they asked me to play guitar when their original guitar player left the band. I was like, I was in community college and it was like my first semester. And I just remember being like, wow, I, I get to go on tour. But yes, there was definitely, there was definitely that kind of like sheltered church kid thing where you were only allowed to listen to something that had the 
seal of approval being sold at a Bible bookstore or something. And for like for Zayo to come out and basically sound like the singer Dan to sound like a demon cackling, but it to be like acceptable to Christian kids, parents at the time maybe was, was a pretty, uh, I remember, I remember church people saying that we were satanic because of how it sounded, and yeah, that was definitely a, was an interesting time. Well, I mean, the and the record you were on, uh, where blood and fire bring rest, that is my favorite. Um, came out in '98. Um, Thank you kindly. <laughs> did you grow up in a Christian household? Was that something that this was an easy transition, or were was that not was that not part of it? No, yeah, my, I definitely did. I definitely did. Um, it that was, but it was still weird because, like, being in Zao, we were making music that was so unbelievably extreme to ninety nine point nine percent of the world at that point in time. Let alone to people in a small town church. It was like a really, you know, it horrified people. I remember. Did you guys play Cornerstone as Zayo? I can't remember. Um, they played before I was in the band, and I played one time. Uh, yeah, I think it was. I think it might have been '98, probably. Uh, yeah. And for people that that for people that might not know, Cornerstone Festival was this. It was in Illinois. And it was like, you know, a, a Christian festival with a ton of bands. And again, it's that thing where, it were, you know, if you were from a certain household, they kind of like restricted, you could actually go to this <laughs> and be able to see bands and hang out. And I thought it was such an interesting little niche um, that, again, um, it wasn't it it wasn't derivative. A lot a lot of times before, you know, Christian music was seen as sort of this like derivative. Okay, well, it's sort of like sounding like whatever's popular. And at this festival, it seemed like there were there were bands that were, you know, interchangeable now. No, I remember it. It was a really odd time because I knew a lot of. One of the ways I got into hardcore was there was a lot of kids that were not church kids at all had no religious background, but they would be like, oh, I listened to some Christian hardcore bands because they're some of the best hardcore bands. And they would like introduce me to some of that stuff. And it, and it was that weird time period. And there was a, there was like a, I don't know. There was, I think that I don't really, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to say much of my true honest opinion about Christian music and the Christian music industry because it's just I don't have very good feelings about any of that at all but but there was a uh, there was a time period where definitely there were a group of people definitely operating completely outside of any corporate or money people that weren't thinking about cashing in on a culture and people that grew up in a certain world and we're just trying to make the coolest music that they could make. And, you know, maybe that still exists. I, I'm clueless, but at that time period, there were, you know, I knew multiple people from different parts of the country that were definitely kind of like fit in that world. I, I feel like I heard in a podcast not too long ago with the actor 
Oscar Isaac talking about being at Cornerstone at that exact time period. He actually summed it up really well. And I was like, that's not, you know, that was surprising. Not somebody I would have expected to have heard, you know, like been a part of that world. But it was a, you know, it was a, it was a is interesting time period for sure. And I feel like you're right, totally right. Like it, what kids didn't care. A kid was a kid. If it was good music, it was good music. And it was going to connect. And I think there's people that take some things out of music, regardless of it being religious or not. They take something from it. And I took something from Zayo different than a friend that might have been. So I think that sort of time period was a great crossing over. Um, and also for labels at the time, I mean, Solid State, you know, you had some of those bands that crossed over into this bigger space um, where more people were like receptive to it. So I, I kind of was, I, I loved that sort of time period a little bit that it wasn't just sort of, well, I'm not going to listen to it um, just because of what it was. Kids didn't care. Um, True. Um, so also you had a side project <laughs> that you were doing, the Juliana Theory, um, and uh that must have been fun. And then when did you realize that it was going to be full time? <laughs> well, it was weird because they both, I, the Juliana theory started and I joined Zayo maybe two weeks apart. Oh, wow. Probably I didn't know that. Time. Yeah. It was like at the exact same time period. And we would do shows together sometimes. And I would, I would do double duty and, you know, come the theory would open and I'd sing and have a costume change, which probably meant maybe taking off a jacket or putting on a jacket and then, um, <laughs> and putting on a guitar and then playing the Zayo set or whatever. But I think it was kind of at about the time that I quit Zayo at about that same time was when well, at about the same time, well, I remember at that point again, going kind of hearkening back to what we were talking about before, where you didn't really know how to get a hold of people, and you kind of didn't really know how to get even like get your music out to people. So I remember when I joined Zayo, I was like, oh, I get to play guitar in my favorite band. But at the same time, we had just recorded a three-song Juliana Theory demo tape. So when I was on the first tour I did, the first Zayo tour, I had copied like 50 to 100, yeah, probably 50 of those cassettes, like of the Theory 3 song demo tape, which is horrible, by the way. And um, I remember like handing it out to certain friends on the road being like, yo, check out my other band that I that I sing for. And and we, I didn't know anybody from any record label except the people from Tooth and Nail, and I remember being like, "Hey, you guys should check out my other band." And I guess at some point, Brandon, the owner of Tooth and Nail, heard it and was like, "Hey, this is cool. I think we'll we we put out your we put out your record. You know, we we'd make a record with you guys if you want to make a record." And I remember him saying, basically, if you let us put it in Christian bookstores, your budget will be. X amount of dollars for your first record, and if you don't, it'll be way less. And I was like, "Well, we're definitely not a Christian band, and there's lots of people in the band with different beliefs. We've got atheists and agnostics and Jewish dude and people that you know, it's just just a band." And so, no, no Christian bookstores. But that was the point. So that was like 
right then when we got that offer, I remember we all got together and we were like, okay, well, we can either be a band who plays some weekend shows or we can try to be serious and like take this as like our thing and, and try to go on tour and be a, you know, be a full-time band. And that, that was kind of like when we made that decision. Wow. All at the same time. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Yep. Uh, and then from, you know, I guess from that period, you had three songs done. And then when did you, when you said yes to tooth and nail, um, was it, all right, let's just get back and start working on the rest. Or were you still touring at that time? Actually, you were probably still, you were still doing stuff with Zayo at the time. I think I was, and it's a little bit hazy, but I was still in Zayo. Yeah, for sure. But we had more than three songs written. We just only had three songs Got it. on a on a demo. So we had probably uh, 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 the majority of the record was probably already written. Like majority of Understand the Dream was probably already written at that point, I think. What were some of the first songs written? I think the very first song, there were three originals that, they, the band had had one or two practices when I wasn't, when I was on tour and they had come up with the music for what became DJ and I think Fiedler would know this better than I do because he's like the historian and I forget everything. <laughs> but I think it was, I think it was like Picture Stars and Dreams Baby and DJ and then this song we had on our first split called Week Long Embrace. And I think those, I think those were the first three that they had. And I just, I just remember like showing up at, at practice and in, was in Neil, our drummer's parents garage. And Chad had this white samic bass that he had bought for $50 and the tuning pegs were falling off and he had nails. There were nails big, long, like four-inch nails sticking out of the back of the headstock holding the, the tuning pegs into the bass. And the thing was, it was totally ghetto. And I remember, like, he had no clue how to play bass at all because he was, he was like a singer before that. And, and I remember Fiedler literally put, putting Chad's fingers on the right frets and saying, this is how you play it. No, you put your fingers there. <laughs> like, and me showing up I remember, oh, this is, this is, this is so, this is so embarrassing, but so like how I, how I remember this time period. So I remember our very first, <laughs> I remember our very first show, one or two of the songs I hadn't really written lyrics for yet. And we used to, okay, you remember like we were, so we're talking about Sunny Day Real Estate and there was kind of like two eras of Sunny Day Real Estate. There was the, Jeremy Enoch first couple records where Jeremy sort of mumbles in a way that you honestly can't understand almost a single word he says. Then they broke up, get back together. And suddenly he's enunciating very clearly and you can understand what he's saying. And suddenly the hooks are way stronger. Well, that original sunny day real estate mineral sound where there was, there was just this way where words sort of garbled together in this, like what we called like the emo sound. 
And I remember going up on stage and at least on one of those songs, just doing that. And like, just, I had like four words. And I just remember like, I, I can't even do it now, but I remember just, I, I probably had four or five words and I was just like mumbling to complete and total what we called the emo sound nonsense. And that was, yeah, that's how, that's how it started. <laughs> It, it was it was it was the thing to do. Like I, Chad used to do the. He had two voices that he would do constantly, and it was Eddie Vedder and Jeremy Enoch. And he would literally like turn any song you could think of into either an Eddie song, which was the name of his side project joke band that sounded like you know how there was all those bands like. Three oh, Doors yeah. Down, Puddle of Mud, Nickelback, whatever. All those bands that sounded like Bad Pearl Jam. And then there was like the everything that came from the Sunny Day tree, which sort of had that that vocal sound that sounded like that. And he would just like basically, I, I, I remember hours of entertainment in the van because of him just literally singing songs that had nothing to do with like emo music in in that voice and we're like it's an emo song and so yeah that was the thing <laughs> when did you first hear the word emo that i cannot uh, i can't really remember i i know that the first bands i heard that fit in that world both came from kind of like legendary western pa metal dudes that got me into stuff like there's this guy jason tipton who runs this death metal label called i think it's willow tip records and there is another guy, Jack Wright, who was the singer for my very favorite hardcore metal band of all time, Passover, and who was like the biggest influence on them. We wouldn't have made like the stuff we made without that band. And both of them made me a bunch of cassette tapes with like mixtapes of like, I remember like Grade, Cap and Jazz. Hot Water Music, Promise Ring, Early Get Up Kids. And both of those dudes being like, Brett, you should listen to this stuff. You'll like it. And and I was like, well, you know, what is this? And I think one of them must have said to me, this is Nemo. And I was like, well, what's that? Like, it's emotional hardcore. And I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> emo core, emotional hardcore. All right, cool. I love it. I want, I want, to, I want to make emotional hardcore <laughs> did you did you did you hate the word or did you have an indifference to the word as the juliana theory was associated with emo well i mean if i'm being totally honest at the, at the beginning when when the band started out the goal was to do the three song demo tape and play one show that was our that was the goal we we were we were like let's start a fun emo band that sounds like Game Face and Sense Field, upbeat, you know, just all upbeat, fun songs. It'll be a side project from, because the rest of us were in either pop punk bands or like metal core screamy bands. And we're like, let's just do this fun, poppy emo thing. Or like uh, upbeat Texas is the Reason song. And so that was absolutely what we set out to do when our goal was to play one show. And then, you know, it, it continues and, and, you know, we made our first record, which I think pretty much fit in that world very well. 
And then suddenly you're like, oh, you're 21 and you feel pigeonholed by something that you chose to do and something that you put yourself in. And if there's anything I've been guilty of doing my whole musical career, it's guilty of or not guilty of. I, I really like to break out of boxes, I guess, and even if they're self-imposed boxes. And so even by the time, you know, by the time we made our second record, we were already like, oh, so annoying being called emo all the time and being lumped in this thing. Can't we just be a rock band? And so, you know, we made the record Emotion is Dead, which was, you know, the title was like obviously a veiled, not veiled at all, tongue-in-cheek joke about you're just, we were like, let's call the album Emo is Dead and put a flower wilting on the cover with tears coming out of it. And that was like our joke. We were like, we were like, what's the most, we were like, what's the most emo thing we could possibly think of? Because at that point, you know, the imagery wasn't, when it became like mall emo later, the, the whole like look of everything changed. But I remember that it'd be like a flower crying. That would be like, like, and if we could just have it dying, oh, and we just call the album emo is dead. And we would just laugh about this stuff for hours and everything was a total joke. But then we're like, what if we actually call the album Emotion is Death? So yeah, by by that point we were already like 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 the, the self imposed label was already felt limiting, like oh why you know, like oh we're 'cause there's you know, 'cause there's rules. It, it's like if you uh, you know, if you are making a horror movie there's a bunch of genre tropes you kinda have to follow and after a while you direct a bunch of horror movies, you might want to break out of that because you're, you're kind of tired of those tropes and you want to do something different and you don't want to be pigeonholed. And I, I think like we, we just, <laughs> you know, I kind of, I guess sort of felt that, but we set out to do it in the first place. So That's really, really interesting. And I think something that I've thought about a lot is when I first saw you guys, when I first, even before I heard the first record, it to me, sounded like okay these are hardcore kids and they're making like a super pop record and they're making it really catchy and i think it was raw you know the first record was raw there were things that you know i was like oh i can tell that they're kind of figuring this out and i think it was ahead of its time um especially emotion is dead um the reason i say that is because at that time you know, you guys were really serious. You know, we're going to do this. We're going to we're going to have, you know, this show that we're going to put on. And I think before it was sort of like you're trying to be cool, you're trying to, you know, not, you know, show that you're kind of making it. And what was really interesting is maybe 3 or 4 years after those records, that was accepted. You know, it was accepted to have the most pro website and all the pro merch and and yeah. do you know what I mean? Like you, it's not. I'm not saying you got you guys were doing it out of this. Like you said, game face and sense field. You know, you were like, I'm going to make a poppy version of that. But what was interesting right after you guys kind of had, and I think I want to bring this up again later with Deadbeat, um, is that you were there and it 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 was it was an honest attempt of like we're going to make these huge songs. And I think people got turned off when four years later they're going to see these bands do the same thing. Well, it was like we definitely got shit for that at 
big time when we started doing it, but it never came from a, none of it was ever contrived. And, you know, you said the first record was raw and that was because we were clueless. You know, that was like the first time. But you could hear that you guys were trying to figure it out. I I could like, you could hear little pieces. We, we definitely, it was the first time that half of us had ever been in a recording studio. Our one guitar player was, 14 or 15 we had two guys that had to take off high school to make that record and we were definitely really naive but by the time yeah by the time we were you know writing emotion is dead i i mean i can tell you for a fact that when i was on tour with Inzeo, the there were like a three or four records we listened to every day in the van cd player and one of them was the first third eye blind record and people used to just be completely flabbergasted that this brutal metalcore band that was super underground would be listening to Third Eye Blind. And I, I remember getting in arguments with kids in other bands about it when I would say in a completely unironic way that we love that record. And the exact same thing, Juliana Theory, we, we love that record and we like grew up listening to a lot of really poppy stuff. So, you know, I remember, uh, maybe this sounds embarrassing, but I, I remember waiting for Google Dolls Iris to come on the radio with a cassette tape ready to dub it because I'd heard it one time and I was like, I got to hear that song again. I want to record, record it. So to us, like pop in general was never like pop rock was never a dirty word and and my my very first band which actually was with chad from the theory and our drummer later on josh walters we were just basically a pop rock band we pensive wrote, right well before that we were called red number nine like ah. pensive became like really emo core but red number nine was just like a pop band so there was no and and fiedler and kosker were in a pop punk band. So there was no, we had no qualms at all about trying to write poppy songs. And we never felt, we also were, we also, you know, I talked about going to the DC and seeing these, these kids for the first time who felt like they all were part of a scene and like they were following rules. Like we weren't from that world. We didn't even understand that there were, genre politics we didn't understand that there were rules of you should do this and you shouldn't do that and we didn't know that there were like unwritten rules of of certain scenes of music that we were breaking when we came out and decided to use drum machines or try to just write big hooks and have like totally unironic poppy songs we we didn't even like it, it just came from a pure place of that what we knew and we were kind of you know in a way sort of clueless but yeah we definitely got we definitely got hell from a lot of people for that at the time and i and and i mean i didn't i'll I'll be honest i was always really genuine and i never really at that point i didn't even understand irony i wasn't like we were never cool none of us were cool kids in school except maybe Costker, we were like, I don't know, just like we were, 
like just like we were never a cool band, and I think like we just we're kind of just trying to do you know trying to make what we were what we what kind of like what we felt and what we believed in and 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 making pop poppy stuff didn't seem out of the you know just felt totally natural to us until it comes out and then a bunch of people are calling us like an emo boy band and you know all of that but what's so funny about that brett is not five years later those same kids are flipping out about and we can act we can label off all the bands it was like i it's just crazy this timing like I always thought, you know, Get Up Kids were going to be the biggest band, and it was, you know, a couple bands later. Or I thought X Band was going to be it, and it was something else. Or it just seemed like if, as you guys were touring, and if, you know, Emotion is Dead had amazing songs on it that I think were connecting, but I just, I guess I was always confused on, like, I was a hardcore kid. And I loved these records, and I didn't care, and I would go see you guys, but it just seemed like a certain group or certain the audience, it hadn't hit that threshold. You know, it wasn't on Top 40. It didn't hit MTV yet. They weren't there yet. Um, I always think about that. Like, what happens if a band was a few years later? And you can't change any of that, but it's just, it's so funny about the timing of when you do something. No, it it, ha- it has everything to do with everything. Timing is so crucial because, you know, timing is the reason that Google knows everything about us and Yahoo doesn't because Yahoo was first or Ask Jeeves or AltaVista or whatever that like they were the first Google, but the time, you know, the timing happened when it happened. And so that's why, you know, it's like, I, I think, yeah, I just, I remember being shocked a few years after the fact because we got so much trash talking and, and so much hate from certain groups of the, you know, the, the cool kids per se who didn't approve of what we were doing. And then finding out, you know, like you said, a few years later hearing like every single band that was one half of a generation below us saying that, oh, they were all doing co-writes with big pop writers in L.A., and they were all, um, you know, they were all listing their influences, and they were all just pop bands or pop artists or pop stars. And us being like, whoa, okay, well, I guess it's acceptable now, but, (laughs) but yeah, it's timing is everything. So to that, I think the epic record... um, you know, 2002, we're talking, you know, post-Bleed American, so we've got a few, we've got a few records and bands are getting noticed, um, and we've talked, I've talked a lot about this on the podcast, about that sort of indie to major jump, and sometimes it works, sometimes it's never even noticed, and it's like, oh yeah, those first two were on the indies, and then they, um, you know, for you guys, what was different about that experience, and what would you have told yourself maybe now, <laughs> then? Uh, well... We wouldn't have signed with Epic. I'll tell you that for a fact. We we would have, we we had like, you know, pretty much that was that right at that point where we were kind of at like the most there was the most excitement for us, and we you know we could have signed with anybody. And and I remember that I remember that Luke Wood, who's signed Jimmy Eat World, 
wanted to sign us to DreamWorks, and we would have been, like, right after them and, like, right before AFI. And, like, the, the, the GM who signed us to Epic got fired pretty much right after we got signed. And Luke, you know, has gone on to be, like, what doesn't he you know, one of the co-owners of Beats and pretty much, like, everything Jimmy Iovine did, he kind of, like, went along with it. So it's like, you you know, we definitely, it's hindsight is twenty twenty and whatever, and we probably made that, that was probably a poor decision looking back on it. But I think, you know, what we were always guilty of, but I don't look at it really in a bad way, is we always just really followed our own muse and just kind of did what we felt we had to do at the time period, whether it bummed people out or, or not. And we were, you know, by the time that we were writing and recording love, well, I have, I definitely have issues with a lot of the choices we made. And a lot of them are my lyrics and just some of the songwriting and some of the artistic choices, but where our heads, heads were at at that point, we were really into just, rock music like you know whether it's smashing pumpkins or whether it was the who anything like that and we you know we we were definitely like we want to be we we've we've we did the the poppy fun emo record and we did the record that's like uh then we did the pop pop rock record and we keep getting better live and then we got josh walters on drums who was just like this monster drummer and we're like well now we you know the next thing to do is show everybody we we can actually rock like we aren't just uh we you know because there was there was two years of us hearing top of the world that's the only thing that we were known for like that song which is like bubblegum pop so we're like well let's show everybody that we can rock too and so we you know we kind of probably went way too far i'm sure we went way too far in that direction and and I, and I also know that we tried so hard to not be pigeonholed and not be part of the scene. Like, I remember going, having, I remember having lunch with Mark Trombino about him producing the record. And us making the decision, no, we definitely can't make a record with Mark because he's too associated with Jimmy Eat World and we're already too lumped into that world and we want to, like stand on our own two feet and not seem like we're just trying to follow in other people's footsteps. And so we're like, we're going to just try to, you know, step out and do our own thing and do what we want to do. And I guess like looking back on some things, I guess, yeah, it's not so much that the label that a different label gave us different options as much as just, we kind of, you know, would, plant our foot in the ground and decide we were going to do a certain thing and we just kind of did it and I think we would have made a almost the same exact record except it wouldn't have sounded nearly good as good because we wouldn't have had the same budget but we would have probably made most of the same songs if we had still went on tooth and nail it just changed the you know way we went about making it I guess what's interesting is the so a fan says, for some reason in this scene, you know, a fan will be like, you know, I want emotion is dead every time. And I, and I think there's certain bands that can come out with something completely different 
and it's accepted. And there, you know, I think when Get Up Kids came out with On a Wire, I mean, people fucking hated it. The last, you know, Promise Ring record, people hated it. Now you bring it up and there's reverence for it. So it's like, I just, I guess that whole of like, I think you guys were taking these chances and you were stepping out and that fan was just like, I'm not having it. Um, and I guess it's just an interesting sort of moment where it was, I want this, you know, seven times, like, you know, like a Blink-182 record. Just just give it to me. <laughs> just give me the same thing every time. Yep. I and, I and I think there's so many cases where that's great and where that's awesome. For instance, ACDC. If ACDC were to come out with some, like, <laughs> I don't know, like psychedelic rock record or like a dub reggae thing or, or anything, prog rock, it would, it would suck. Like, you just want to hear those, you know, two... Marshall stacks and you want to hear that sound that they have and it, and like they should just kind of do that and I think there's a there's a place for there's a place for both and we were probably guilty of going trying you know going too far in in different directions but at the same time I never I never fault anybody for trying what they believe they need to do and even if like it doesn't turn out well that's kind of like that's kind of what art is and it's like my favorite directors and my favorite you know musicians should they take chances and sometimes you know you look at neil young and it's like there's certain records in his career that almost nobody likes but god love him for just doing what he wants and and trying to do things and so i i you know i can look back and say there's certain things that I hate about album love, but there's also way more people now. I hear way more kids in bands or uh, dudes at record labels or random people on Twitter tell me that that's their favorite theory record. And it's kind of like, I don't know, it's just, you know, different people appreciate different things at different times for, for different reasons. And sometimes if you give somebody culture shock and they're expecting this certain thing and I, I believe me i totally get it because i i from a fan perspective there's a a lot of things that i would be bummed if a certain you know if this uh i love the americans or i and if that show came out and they completely changed the the format of the next season and and changed everything i like about the show i'd i'd be really bummed so i totally get it and I, I see both sides of it, and I, I can get it from a fan who's bummed or a fan who's stoked, and I, I appreciate both. It's, and again, we go back to timing. It's like when you, you know, when you have the reunion shows or not. When you, it's, it's just really funny. I think 2005, too, Deadbeat Sweetheart, which I will say one of my favorite songs of yours is on this record. <laughs> oh, what song? My Heart is a Soldier. Oh, thank you very much. Thank so I would like to add that uh, uh, when you play more shows, please uh, add that to the set list. I'll be more than happy to uh, <laughs> provide. Thank uh, you kindly. Okay, good. So, but that, again, 2005, if we can go back to that time again, still a little early. Um, things were starting to get a little ramped up in that in the scene scene, if we're thinking about it. And Abacus, you know, kind of gave a good shot. But... At that time, I feel like kids had moved on. They were like, 
old is old. I'm on to the new. Absolutely. We were, and I think like we were viewed as damaged goods, you know, by the, by the industry for sure. No doubt. Because if you sign to a major label and there's all these expectations and, and, you know, Epic decided that the record was dead before they released it. They decided not to promote it. They decided not to do anything for it because they, we found out later that they felt that we made the wrong record and it came out, you know, sold really well at the beginning without any, any push. But a week after we had made the record, they were like, you guys want to, all right, well that record's dead. Let's talk about the next one. And we were like, are you kidding? Our record just came out a week ago and you did nothing for it. Why would we want to make another record with you? So we asked to get out of our deal. And I know that the, I think it's a combination of, you know, not necessarily like, yeah, that, I think like that happening, uh, I feel like we put our best foot forward making Deadbeat and definitely try to make the best record we could. And I know that the band was playing at our best at that point. Um, but yeah, I, I think like definitely I felt, I felt like, okay, there's a movie that if there's a movie that comes, if it comes on TV and I'm, and I'm flipping through the television and I see any part of Spinal Tap, I have to stop and whatever I'm doing and watch the rest of Spinal Tap. And I think it's because I feel partially because it's so hilarious to me. And I feel like for about two or three years that we kind of lived that. And I feel like Juliana Theory was like the emo spinal tap for a couple of years. I just feel like I remember us what like we'd like walk into a hotel and like some band that opened for us would be like walking out and we'd see them and be like, Hey guys, what are you doing? And they'd be like, Hey, what's up dudes? And where are you playing? And we'd be like, Oh, we're playing so-and-so. And we'd be like, Oh, we're just playing the Enormo Dome. You know, just like straight up, like final tap moment, and I, I felt like, oh man, like, oh yeah, remember when they, remember when they opened for us, and like, no, like, you know, nobody knew who they were, and oh, now they're, uh, now they're playing for uh, six thousand people a night, and like, we just definitely, we made a lot. I think we made a lot of poor decisions, whether it be business or artistic or a combination of both. But again, we weren't really thinking a lot of times we weren't necessarily putting like business, the smartest business decisions first in our head. We were just like trying to be what we thought was a good band at the time or write what we thought were good songs at the time. Or I think is really obsessed with the idea of challenging ourselves and I've always been kind of obsessed with that. And yeah, sometimes to my own detriment or sometimes to the band's detriment of like, don't stay in a safe place where you could easily keep doing something that, that's safe. And so I just, yeah, I think like with Deadbeat, we kind of, we were, you know, victims of our own making to a degree, but also victims of a bad, you know, a really bad you know, couple of like record deal situations. And, and, you know, and so, we were pretty jaded at the, at the time. And I think it's easy to get jaded when you're in a van for years with the same dudes and you have that like us against the world pirate ship mentality. But at the same time, we, you know, we loved what we were doing, but I think like sometimes 
I, I really sometimes dig angry music, but there, there's definitely some like piss and vinegar in that record for sure that, that I hear when I listen to it. But like maybe, maybe it was a little too, maybe I was a little too jaded on like some of the lyrics or whatever. But again, you just you just try what you're trying, I guess. Yeah, and then you guys kind of said, "All right, this is it." Um, after that tour cycle, remember having a talk because it, it with the band because we were like, you know, we love doing this and we could keep doing uh, a version of what our band is, but at the same time, it it kind of felt like people. Well, you know, it just kind of felt. At that point, I have to be honest and say that I was unbelievably burnt out on rock music, unbelievably burnt out on distorted electric guitars, loud drums, and I really felt like it would be really difficult for me to passionately try to write that type of music. And, you know, because it's been what I've been doing for X amount of, you know, since, like, high school and and I always felt like the theory as much as maybe we had made questionable decisions from time to time the one thing that I felt like was the most thing that I kind of like believed in the most in the van was that we always put our heart 100% into what we did and if we were going to make if we were going to try to be a rock band we were going to try really hard and we were going to try to be the most rockingest rock band we could and if we were going to try to write big poppy songs we were going to try to just go for it and and when I kind of felt like I was so burnt out on that style of music and at the same time we felt like you know everything went down really poorly with Epic and then on Deadbeat like it just like the label just like kind of disappeared anyways and it just it just felt like to go and do something that would be like half-hearted on my part, I I felt like I couldn't do that to the band, and maybe that sounds like a cop out, but if anything, if anything, I've always been so sincere, too sincere, way too sincere about things, and I, it gets me into trouble. But I I just couldn't like do a half-hearted version of a band that for 10 years we never would have done half-hearted. So it just kind of felt like that was the time to say goodbye, you know? And for you, you had two solo records, Bird in the Tangle in 2010 and Too Free to Live 2013. Those were, you know, singer, songwriter, country, like it kind of, you seem to be pulling from different places. What about that time was for you um, making those records? Well, I think it kind of came from, you know, it was like a, an amalgamation of things, but one for sure was I really did become completely enamored with and, uh, and obsessed with old classic country music for even like the, maybe like the last two or three years of the theory. I pretty much only listened to Waylon Jennings and Town Van Zandt and Johnny Cash and Loretta Lynn and Guy Clark and stuff like that. And one of the things that kind of 
stuck with me was I, the the very first thing that I ever recorded and released ever in my life was uh, this, like an eight song acoustic demo thing I made in in my parents' basement on a four track, and and it was just like an acoustic guitar and vocals, and I get really into record production and I get really into you know overdubbing and layers and different things, and after a while with the band, sometimes I would, I would lose track of song for what a song is, which is a vocal melody and a lyric and the chords. And a great song could just be played in almost any style or on any instrument. And if it doesn't need anything else to still be great, then it's a great song. And I, I lost sight of that for a few years and in the band and kind of got like, Oh, if it doesn't have, this many guitar tracks or whatever, it's not a good song. And when I got into, like, you know, hearing, like, the Cash American records or hearing Towns Van Zandt live at the old Quarter Horse, like, hearing these things that were, like, one guy playing this one instrument and just singing and hearing, oh, this is just a melody and a, and a lyric, that took me back to the essence of songwriting and the essence of just like getting to the heart of a song. And so I think it was like the combination of becoming really burnt out by loud, distorted guitars, listening almost completely to old country and folk. And then having the period of your band breaks up, but pretty much the only thing you do in uh, the only thing I did from pretty much graduating high school on the only thing I knew, suddenly the band breaks up i'm not there's not that cycle of making records and going on tour anymore i'm not i moved away from western pennsylvania i'm not with i grew up with like theory guys a lot of them i've known since i was like six years old so suddenly like not with my friends and i'm not you know following this cycle of doing things and the whole combination i just felt really kind of displaced and i and i remember like I also had totally lost confidence in myself as a songwriter and a singer and a musician. And I like totally quit music. And I said, I'm done. I'm not going to write any more songs. And for about three years, I didn't do anything actively musical at all. I had this little like electric like uh, tape recorder, mini cassette recorder thing. And every once in a while, I would get a song idea and I would record it really quickly and I'd never listen to it again. And I didn't know why I was doing it because I was like, I quit. But at one point after a couple of years, I listened back and I was like, oh, I think I, I think I have a record here. And so I ended up, you know, deciding, like I ended up deciding to, to make my first solo record for the single out of those songs. But it, it came from, those records are, are the most personal things I've ever done, they're extremely soul-bearing as far as, like, a lot of what I'm talking about lyrically, and they're a lot more, it's just a lot more personal because it's 100% from me, and it's not, uh, you know, it's not having to, uh, having to make a song that you know might bum out your bass player or the guitar player because they don't get to play for a while or because they 
wouldn't like this style of song. I could just, I just, you know, did what exactly, like what was I was feeling. And so they're very, very pure records to me, even if somebody would hear them and say, well, well, you know, like, where did he get into country music or whatever? I became like a, a complete, like, geek out level obsessed where I would only read books about that kind of music. I would only watch documentaries and movies about old country music. And I was just like a, a collecting memorabilia, like completely obsessed to the point where it was like, I studied, I like studied that stuff for like 10 years. And so I don't know. It just was like a, it came from a place of not believing in myself musically, like genuinely thinking I sucked and also being completely burnt out on rock music and feeling very alone. And I think just, I guess like, but also feeling sort of like compelled to still write, songs, even though I was telling myself that I was done writing songs, and so, is where those records came from. Um, so I would love to, you know, I think we've been talking a lot about, I mean, there's been some ups and downs, and I think there's an, that this is an up period right now, um, and I think we're in a really interesting spot where the independent scene is sort of open to, not only there's great new bands, but there's a lot of people are talking about the you know the mid two thousands and bands are still playing. I was living in Nashville and one of my buddies in L A. texted me and he said, "Dude, I'm an emo night and they're playing your music and it's awesome." We've been playing your music since 2011. <laughs> at our at our <laughs> you're, deed. you're but you're the keeper of the emo. You're the originator. You're the, you're the old school. <laughs> I mean, were you wearing were you wearing a shirt that said "Wash Up Emo" in huge letters on the balcony at Sunny Day Real Estate in 2010 or nine? Was that you? Yes. Yes. So yeah, you were you were yeah. I saw that. I saw you up there, and I saw the <laughs> huge writing, and I was like, "Whoa, what is that? What is happening?" Like, yeah. So you're you're you're, you're the pioneer. You guys have a lot going on, um, and you guys are back together, correct? Yeah, we're playing a bunch of shows this summer, which is uh, kind of like a, was a surprise to most of us, in a, in a way. Like, I never thought we would do it. I was positive that we would not play together again. But we are. And it actually feels, it actually feels really good, to be honest. The thing that kind of always stuck with us was some bands... You know, you you hear stories about bands that, that hate each other or, you know, bands taking different buses and not speaking to one another. We're all from the exact same small town, and most of us were friends long before the band. We stayed friends after. We all text on a regular basis about the Penguins and about life stuff and you kind of like get to this point where you realize we had been getting offers to play shows since we did that tiny reunion run in 2010 and we always said no and I kind of got to the point where I was like 
what reason is there to keep saying no? I was saying no only on principle at the beginning, but by the end it was like, well, we all get along and we're all friends. We all still like each other. There's people sending us messages, asking us to play more shows. There's people who want to sing our songs with us live and we all get along and have a lot of fun when we're playing together and just hanging out, just joking around and being idiots. So kind of like it, why, I guess like, why wouldn't we, you know, if there's no bad blood at all, then why wouldn't we get back together and play some shows if, if that opportunity actually exists? So it just felt like it felt natural, but when, Fiedler called me or sent me a text and said, you know, 2017 is our 20-year anniversary of the band forming. And that, that's when I, it kind of hit me like, okay, maybe this makes sense. If we're going to play some shows that let's do it. Let's have an, you know, have an anniversary. And that gives, you know, it makes sense. It seems like the right time to do it. Have you seen The Emotion is Dead in infomercial? And what do you think about it? I saw it. I thought it was really funny. I thought it was hilarious. What's um, What's hilarious too? I think, which is, I love that it's it's like these two teachers. <laughs> so it's so random, and it parodies like the the era of our band when we were very much kind of larger than life, trying to put on the 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 you know the rock show on and un- unabashedly and I love that it just you know it just calls it out in the best way Instagram Twitter you know Facebook all those things how are you guys adjusting to um, all of those things yeah we're, we're definitely still figuring it out I mean when we broke up there wasn't even YouTube like that, that just sounds so like we just aged ourselves so much there but I remember the band breaking up and literally about a week later, suddenly this YouTube thing came out and you could see like every show. So I, I definitely remember regularly posting on MySpace and regularly replying to things people would write in or comments or whatever. But I know it's been fun to, uh, we started an Instagram and, and, you know, and do some things and it's mostly just been posting old pictures of us looking like idiots or funny throwback things or memes we find are, are fitting and, and funny or whatever but it, it, it's always enjoyable to uh, you know to, to interact with everybody and I remember on our first tour I remember their video for New Noise went viral and what that meant at that time period was we showed up in Louisville, and somebody goes, have you seen this Refused video? And I remember me being like, no. And they pop in a dub VCR VHS tape, like freaking like scratchy beginning and buzz on it. They put it in, and we watched the video. All of our mouths dropped, and we're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And they're like, you here, because we made this copy for you. So we take this with us, and next place we go, we're like, hey, have you guys seen this Refused video? And people are like, yeah, check out this VHS, and they play it for us again. It was like, stuff could go like viral in this slow, organic kind of 
passed along copy of a copy of a copy in a good way, cassette tapes or whatever, but it was slow and it was not instantaneous. Whereas now it's pretty pretty crazy to be able to literally, you know, we were talking the other day about, well, man, what, what should we do for merch for t-shirts? It was like, well, we had a couple t-shirt ideas and I was like, you know, I might just actually post this shirt, just say, what do you guys think of this shirt? Would you wear this shirt? And if everybody's like, this shirt sucks, then we won't print the shirt. But if people are like, this shirt's great, like, couldn't have done that before. So definitely, there's definitely good things about being able to interact with everybody. I think, you know, there's not really mystery anymore, which I do miss because I always like those kind of bands too. And those are some of my favorite bands where the bands you didn't know anything about and didn't show their pictures ever. Or their album covers were just like something iconic and not a picture of the band, but different times. What do you want to do that you haven't done? I feel like you've, you've done a lot with... You know, if it's scoring, you've done, you know, your solo stuff, you've had this band, ups and downs, and we're hopefully in an up phase for Juliana Theory. Um, what what are there things that you're like, I can't wait to do this? And you could be thinking about something 10, 20 years from now. Well, I always wanna I always wanna collaborate with different people and I always wanna do things that are new to me. So whether that means maybe not totally specifically, but you know, I I, I know that I'm I've been really ever since I started doing you know doing some film music. I've I definitely been inspired by and felt the freedom of being able to use instruments that are totally not organic and have nothing to do with the real world. And I've definitely been recording a lot of stuff like that lately that may or may not see the light of day. I'm always just interested in doing stuff that I haven't done in the past, and I I. We'll definitely be doing more movie-related things, and and um, you know that's that's a world that interests me a lot. Is just movies and television, and that you know everything that kind of goes along with that process. So just just being able to make things is what drives me. So as long as I'm making something, and then I'm then I feel happy. And last question, what does it feel like to have people still remember the Juliana Theory? It's very flattering. And we were never, we were never like a gigantic band who ever, we never hit like mainstream pop culture level. So to be 20 years after we started playing in a garage in Latrobe, Pennsylvania after like our goal is to play one show and do a three song demo tape the fact that it's this many years later and there are people who actually want to see us play songs and that they people might have named their babies after us or things like that is just totally it's totally nuts and that is like a something that kind of like you can't really take that for granted and so it's pretty it's pretty flattering and pretty awesome to feel like you're a part of something that matters to people even if it's not a ton of people still that it matters to the 
That was perfect, man. Thanks, Brett. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it, man. That was great. It was really fun.